Welcome to another edition of the Dishcast. I'm extremely excited today. We have as a guest Nick Miroff, who is the well. He's been covering the border, quote unquote, crisis now for quite a while. He covers the DHS, Department of Homeland Security for the Washington Post, and also the broad uh, topic of immigration enforcement and immigration as a whole. Um. He went to Berkeley, then he went to journalism school of all places, um, <laughs> where he finally got a, an internship at the Washington Post, what, in 2006? 2006. And you've been there ever since? I have. And uh, it's been a pretty good period for the Washington Post, the last, last few years. I mean, it's, it's got some money, finally. It's been up and down. I've seen it go through several phases. I've enjoyed the Post, even though I think it's gotten a really... A little out there lately, but your stuff, and I want to recommend this to listeners, if, you, if you're interested in actually trying to find out the reality, I found uh, Nick Miroff's coverage to be just the fairest, the clearest. I don't feel I'm being spun. I don't feel I'm being in any way manipulated, and I get huge amounts of interesting and good information. And at a time when journalism and journalists are under extraordinary pressure, from one side or the other to tilt their stories one way or another on a question as loaded as this one. Um, it's kind of amazing that you've done the work, job you've done. I'm, I'm, I'm really, as a reader, I'm really grateful for it. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me here today. Tell me where you're from. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Albany, New York. Um, and uh, I, I went to college and graduate school and journalism school in California. My, both my parents are from California. And uh, it was it was uh, 2006 when I got I got an internship at the Washington Post, and what do your parents do for a living? If you don't mind my asking. Sure, my my father's a political scientist. Oh. He teaches. Uh, he's he's about to retire after nearly 40 years at, at SUNY Albany. Wow. And um, my mother is a is a psychologist a therapist, and she's retired too. She's out in California. What do you think? encouraged you to be a reporter? What drew you to this particular area? Presumably you could have done a lot of things. And here's this dying industry. <laughs> uh, and yet you, you went for it. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it was curiosity to begin with. Um, I, grew up, uh, yeah, I grew up around William Kennedy, the great uh, writer from Albany, author of Ironweed. And um, I wanted to be a writer. And I started reading Latin American novelists like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez um, when I was in a very impressionable moment, and and I got a kind of a, uh, an itch to travel abroad. I'd never, never really left the country. Um, and when I was in college, I took a, a year off from school, and I I traveled from Guatemala to Argentina, uh, overland. Um, so you've had an interest in this region for a very long time. Yeah, ever since then. And, uh, you know, I began to learn Spanish and I worked in different places and, um, and just wanted to write and I wanted to have adventures and I wanted to understand. And I just had this, you know, real curiosity and it wasn't, you know, didn't take long. I didn't, I didn't you know, like edit a high school or a college paper or anything like that. But, um, I but curiosity to... is the core, I think, the core qualification to be a journalist. I think so. Interested in finding out things you actually don't already know, which is, which is a rare thing now. I feel, I feel like I read a lot of stuff in which people already know what they think, and they, they, they skew the facts to sort of fit that narrative. Um, I haven't felt that with the work that you've been doing. 
Well, I, I think it also, you know, early on, you, you learn that um, you, if you ask a range of different people what their views are, um, and, the, and you recognize that they, they take those views seriously and you have an obligation to, to represent those views accurately and to, to challenge people's preconceptions of what they think something is. Um, they challenge your, your views and the more you ask those questions and you know, hear from different people, the more you, you come to a, both a kind of a broader understanding and a skepticism about the the intensity or the you know the purity of, of of people's professed views and ideologies. What is the you've been how long have you been actually been down there at the border on and off now for how long con- continuously? Well, I've been covering immigration um, for more than fifteen years, really from every different part of it. I mean, um, you know, from the from the countries in Central America and communities in Mexico where people leave to the border on the Mexican side and Mexican border towns, um, the shelters all throughout Mexico where people stop on the way, um, the towns on the U.S. side, and then obviously the communities where people arrive here. When I first got to the post in 2006, uh, I, sp- I spoke Spanish, and so they assigned me to Prince William County, Virginia, to Man- Manassas. And I thought, oh, God, this is going to be so dull, right? And I and I got out there, and it was this this community that was that was booming in the you know in the post 9/11 homeland security state right and all these people were coming for jobs working for you know contractors in, in northern virginia and that was the kind of the edge of the dc suburbs and there was still some farmland there where developers could build houses and who was building the houses central american migrants and so i discovered this whole world out there of you know mostly salvadoran um, uh, you know, workers who were who were they were you know building you know this this new booming Washington that was becoming more prosperous, and there were incredible tensions out there because that was sort of the outer periphery of the D.C. metro area, but also the start of the you know the kind of old South, and the tensions were explosive, and it was one of the first kind of flashpoints in in this in this broader debate. Well, what do you think was the primary reason for uh, the tension. Uh, people, you know, people who had um, grown up in this community, in a, you know, in a community like that, um, and were, you know, had a had a, a very conservative sense of of its of its values, you know, in the traditional sense of the word, um, and seeing it rapidly changed by by money and by development, and um, by the, the just the nature of the fact that it was being absorbed into this. Um, increasingly prosperous, dynamic, you know, uh, global capital um, area. And they felt that their own area where they were born and grew up was somehow being co-opted by bigger forces uh, of capitalism and of of mass migration that that they didn't really feel a part of. Is is that? Yeah, I think it was seeing seeing people that didn't look like them, that spoke Spanish, that, um, you know, that, that, you know, didn't follow the rules that they they wanted to see observed like like what oh just you know the way people would you know park or parking their work trucks on you know on the on the on the street or taking too many parking spaces or houses that had um single men living in them and i mean some of it was lifestyle stuff like that Mm -hmm. others were you know the tensions in the schools and this is this is happening and has happened all over the west western europe in particular where i came from in england i hear these stories too of towns and cities that 
but often quite towns and often you're right these kind of exurban places where there's room for growth where people don't necessarily see people as obviously and their character has changed very very quickly um in England, there were towns that suddenly everyone was speaking Polish. No one had spoken Polish before. And yet a whole segment of the town then became almost Poles only. And this is, a, this is something that America has a lot of experience with, obviously, but Europe really didn't. And there was a, a cultural response to this, which a lot of people said was just racism. And I tend to think it's a little bit more, uh, I, I try to be a little bit more empathetic to it than that. I mean, when people's worlds are entirely turned around, they're going to have uh, feelings of dislocation and, and uh, unsettlement, right? Yes, that definitely happens. I mean, you've seen that uh, time and time again, and that's why, I mean, I, I do think that this country is, on the whole, been very successful at, at bringing people into the fold and assimilating, um, you know, people who, um, you, you know, who come here with a, with a, with a dream of, of improving their lives, of, of giving their children a better life. Um, but it almost invariably produces tensions, and in a lot of these in these communities that change really, really fast, that's where you see it flare up. It's the pace, really, that we're. I mean, I was looking at just at your recent pieces. Um, I just give listeners a sense of the headlines: border crossings in March jumped to highest level in 15 years. Border officials say more people are sneaking past them as crossings soar, and agents are overwhelmed. Family groups crossing border in soaring numbers point to next phase of crisis. Uh, this, is, this is obviously a big wave that we're currently looking at. In the context of the last like 30 years, how, how big is this? So um, what's, what's remarkable about uh, this current moment that we're in, I mean, I, I do think that we're um, at the beginning of, of another kind of extraordinary migration event. Um, we had one in, in 2014 to a certain extent when, when children, when unaccompanied children and families first really started showing up in large numbers, challenging the Obama administration. Um, we had an, another major one in 2019 when, um, when record numbers of, of families arrived and um, overwhelmed you know, the, the border infrastructure despite all of the Trump administration's efforts to really keep them out and to deter them in you know myriad ways, and you know what we're what we're seeing now, um, just to give you an idea of the numbers. So last month, more than one hundred seventy thousand people were taken into custody along the Mexico border, um, and one hundred seventy thousand people. How do, how do you accommodate one hundred seventy thousand people? Well, not very well, and that's why you've seen the images of of teenagers and children packed into those border patrol tents, um, and you see uh, fam a lot a lot of families obviously being um, processed and quickly released, and then you see some families being sent back to Mexico to confuse matters even more, and then you see soaring numbers of uh, single adults crossing being taken into custody being returned to Mexico and then trying to enter again, which is what we call recidivism. And, and then a significant number of those folks evading capture and, and successfully entering. Um, so it's 100, not 170,000 individuals necessarily, but it's 170,000 de detentions or, or law enforcement actions, right? They call them encounters. Um, and Compared been, with like last year at this time, like what, 170,000 versus 
I mean, I, 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 you probably don't have it at the tip of your fingertips. Well, last but... year at this time, we were right in the beginning of the pandemic and the oh, numbers right. fell off the table. And right, so they right, were right. among the lowest in 50 years. But that's because the pandemic hit and they, in, they implement, Trump implemented this thing called uh, Title 42, which is basically a, 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 an emergency health order allowing the Border Patrol to just rapidly return people who came across to Mexico with the goal of um, of emptying detention centers and border patrol stations to prevent the spread of infection. And that is still in effect, if officially anyway. That is still officially in effect, but increasingly not in that um, the Biden administration from the very beginning basically made a decision not to apply it to um, unaccompanied minors and very, very publicly announced that. And then um, they have say that they want to continue to use it on family groups to turn them back to Mexico. But Mexico increasingly is not taking those family groups back. It says it does not have capacity. And uh, I mean, if you've seen the images from Mexican border cities, you can see that that's clearly the case. And then it continues to use Title 42 to return single adults. But again, that has allowed so many to just try over and over and over again because under pre-pandemic, the pre-pandemic system is built on the kind of the, this border patrol concept of consequence delivery. So if you have somebody who's trying over and over again, then then you you could actually charge them with a legal reentry, uh, and and they would face prosecution. They could spend some time in jail, and then they would be they would be deported. All of which is to basically up the ante for um, for repeating the you know the attempt to enter. Right. Otherwise, there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't just try again. And again, that's what's again, happening again. now. Is that is that is that particularly a lot of single single men, a lot more um, men from Mexico, which is which is different from what we've seen in recent years, are, are coming. Um, and the U.S. economy is booming, and there's a big demand for labor. And, um, and yeah, we're about to enter this massive debt fuel boom, and also post pandemic boom. There's always going to be a boom after a period of artificial freezing of the economy, essentially. But it just occurs to me that with 170,000 in March, with Title 42 in actual force, when are they going to lift Title 42? And what would happen if they did? Um, because that seems to give a crude weapon to sort of try and prevent some people. But uh, we could see this rise a lot further if we if we if the pandemic seems to be declining and that's another thing that's that's a that's a, a pull and a push right i mean that the, the the us soon will be um up with israel and the uk will will have a pretty good sense of not having covid ravaging the population that will bring lots of people here especially since mexico was what vaccinated about 5% of its population at this point so it's way behind when Let's go back to Trump for a minute, just to set the scene for some of this stuff. Because some people are arguing that he artificially depressed these numbers, he deterred lots of people, and that what we're seeing now is simply a function of that bottleneck being unreleased. Is that, is that, is that largely true? You know, you could, you, if, oh, it's almost like you, you think of the immigration system as like an old car, right? Like we have this car from the 1960s, and it's been breaking down. Over, over the decades. And Trump got in there and he filled it with a bunch of, a bunch of improvised parts with the goal of making that car go five, 10 miles an hour. And the Biden people got in there and they looked at all those parts and they tore them out and they said, these don't belong in here. And they got in the car and they hit the gas. <laughs> and now the car is going 
80 miles an hour down the freeway and it's falling apart and they're going, this car doesn't run right. It's terrible. And, and now they have to fix it as they're barreling down the highway. Right. Which and, is a lot harder than before. And it makes it a lot harder. Um, you know, all of these things, all of these, these issues have been accumulating for decades. And when the Trump administration came in, it, its you know overarching goal was to slow the system down and keep people out primarily, right? To reduce the number of immigrants coming. And they devised hundreds of you know little fixes and tweaks. A lot of them hatched by by you know Stephen Miller, Trump's top immigration advisor. And they still faced a major you know uh, migration surge in 2019. Despite all that. And that's partly because they couldn't get a legislative fix. I mean, that they, they screwed up essentially that bill with the Democrats and, and, and weren't prepared to like a compromise without getting restrictions on future legal immigration, as I understand those talks. Yes. And, you know, we've seen again and again that whenever a compromise appears to be at hand, the, the, the sort of more extreme voices in both parties really really commandeer the debate and the conversation and foreclose, you know, the possibility of some of some kind of compromise um, in, you know, obviously with the Republicans case, it was this it's this idea of amnesty that you can't um, forgive people who arrived illegally. And and they're still um, kind of wedded to this idea that you can somehow get rid of or, or to deport um, the more than 10 million people who are who are in the in the United States without legal status, and you saw that when Trump came in and he said he was going to deport millions of people, and he, you know, and very quickly, even despite all their best efforts, they were only able to really marginally, you know, increase the number of deportations they were carrying out, and then rapidly produced an enormous backlash, and you really saw that overreach, obviously, with zero tolerance family separation, where they entered into something that was. You know, well, I think most of us hate the idea of of uniform people being able to go around finding people, uh, putting them in vans and deporting them. It's just it's just it's the kind of scenario that you know that that is an in an authoritarian state. On the other hand, um, and it doesn't happen very often. So it, I mean, it's very hard to do, and it's immediately very unpopular for good reasons. Uh, it seems to me. The number of people who actually get deported every year, I mean, people who are actually physically taken from the U.S. and sent back to their homes by plane or whatever, it's pretty small, isn't it? It's about, I'm told it's roughly about 2% of the total undocumented alien um, population each year gets, gets physically removed. So when I do the numbers on that, if I were an immigrant, well, I am an immigrant, but we'll talk about that maybe a bit later. Um, because uh, I went through this system uh, in, an, in an extraordinarily uh, grueling fashion, it, 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 not compared to what any, not compared in any way to what these people are going through. But uh, I, I would think, well, only two percent, so ninety-eight out of a hundred are going to stay there forever. Once I get across the border, um, I'll be okay. Even if, let's say, you file an asylum case at the border, you you get processed as an asylum seeker, you get a court date. You can show up to that court date, uh, and many do. Uh, many don't, but many do. But that court date does not have a process in place there 
to take the people and immediately deport them. They leave the court courthouse with an appointment to, to get on a plane, but don't show up for obvious reasons. So this whole idea that we actually have some kind of effective sanction seems to me to be uh, is imaginary. There isn't one. I mean, basically, everyone who gets here basically gets to stay here. Sort of. I mean, um, you're absolutely right that the that the chances of being deported, particularly if you don't have any kind of law enforcement run in, are extremely low. Um, but but I think that you know what we've seen over time is that particularly for the progressive activists in the Democratic Party, there's a real discomfort with kind of the basics of immigration enforcement, detention and deportation. And the Obama administration early on tried to split the difference by really focusing on people who had broken the law and criminal violators. And the way you, you, way you, you make it more palatable is that you take people out of the prisons and jails when they complete a sentence. If they, have a, um, if, they, you know, if they don't have legal status in the United States, then you put a detainer on that person and you take them into custody and then you deport them from the country after they're done. And, you know, we saw um, when, the, when Trump came in, uh, this, this idea that he was going to, you know, take the shackles off of ICE and, and basically give ICE free reign to, uh, to, you know, give individual officers more discretion to pick people up. And that's why you saw during the Trump administration a lot more stories about people who, you know, they were on a traffic stop or their neighbor turned them in or, um, and you did get some of that, um, you, you increasingly had that sense that there were ICE agents out there just sort of hunting people down in a way that, that made a lot of people uncomfortable. And so now, you know, Biden has has come in and really um, dialed it back uh, even further, most notably in coming in saying that there would be a 100-day pause on deportations, but also issuing new priorities for ICE agents to, to really get them um, to exclusively focus on, you know, someone who's like a national security threat or somebody who's like an aggravated felon or a recent border crosser. And so when you look at deportations, you got to break down between who you know people who've recently crossed the border and then and then people who are removed from the interior of the United States and and what we're going to have going forward is um, you know really uh, almost exclusively it will be people with serious criminal violations and when the um, when a lot of U.S. cities and jurisdictions implemented those sanctuary policies as you'll remember right that really deprived you know, ICE of, of a lot of its most kind of reliable stream of people to deport, right? So if you can't get people from the LA County jail system or you can't um, you know, get people from the Chicago jails, then you're gonna, you're gonna have fewer people who or you're gonna be able to, to deport. So what we haven't seen is whether the Biden administration will, will try to, to try to get you know, new work out new agreements with those with those jurisdictions to be able to remove more people with with serious criminal records. But so far, what we've seen is that deport deportations have have fallen by by more than fifty percent, and that the number of people arrested by ICE is down about sixty percent just in the the first two months of the administration. Wow, that's that's interesting. So it's a big drop, and and you know the other thing to look at is. Um, is what is obviously the biggest challenge right now for the Biden administration, as it was for Trump, are unaccompanied minors and family groups. And um, the, the Department of Homeland Security produced a really interesting and detailed statistical report about five months ago looking at um, what is the life cycle of somebody who crosses a family or, or, or an unaccompanied minor. And 
if they and they went all the way back to 2014 when when that was the first big wave and um, and it shows that basically only about you know five percent of the unaccompanied minors who were who, who have arrived since 2014 have been returned to their home countries and about six percent um, of the families and um, the vast majority of both groups had cases that are that are still pending that have been unresolved. And we have a backlog of like 1.3 million. That's right. Cases. That's right. That, that, so we have 1.3, at least 1.3 million people, maybe more, because some of these cases are families and so on, who, who, who are still waiting for resolution of, of a very basic thing, and that could go on for years. And that can go on for years, and then sometimes when there is resolution, they, then the, those people don't necessarily leave. I mean, right. if, the, if a court orders you to leave the country and go back to Guatemala. You know, do you take the risk of remaining in the in the country, knowing that the chances of being arrested and deported are relatively low? And so, of you course, know, you do. Of yeah, course, you. And, do. and also, when you've lived somewhere, even if it's another country, for example, for the longer you stay, the harder it is to leave uh, psychologically, economically, financially. You make connections. You. You, you you have human bonds. Uh, you have U.S. born children. Yeah, and you have you, which are the ultimate. Uh, reason to stay, especially when, since they've been acculturated here. So what I'm seeing when you look at this as a whole is you see that there's very small likelihood that you're going to be thrown out. Uh, the advantages of getting here are, are obviously quite large uh, in terms of money, financial security, etc. Of course, we're going to have 170,000 people a month trying to get over the border. It seems quite obvious. The question to me is, just as a basic issue, is that is there any other country on Earth that has its borders absorbing up to 200,000 people a month that that are just coming into the country? I mean, I can't think of one at the top of my head. It's as if we have, I mean, I think this was the power of the Trump position, which is that but we don't have any control at all over this. And there was a kind of sense among both the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats were like, great, you know, we're still stuck in this righteous era ahead where we think all these people are going to vote for us, so who cares? And the Republicans are like, well, all these multinationals and all these big ag people that fund us want this cheap labor, so let it happen. Meanwhile, a lot of people in the middle of the country just like incredibly pissed off about it. Is that a, is that a unfair situation unfair I, don't, I don't know what this administration's strategy is I don't think that there's um, like an electoral end game to this people who lack legal status in this country don't vote and um, anybody sitting in the White House looking at these polls showing that immigration is the weakest and uh, issue for Biden and the one that is polling the worst and that is facilitating in some ways the reconciliation of the Republican Party allowing it to you know, pave over some of the divisions that emerged during the Trump administration. I think if you're looking at that, you're seeing a significant cost to the, to the status quo. So what, what is, it, is it gonna do about it? What is the administration, what are its options? It's, not, it's, it's in a very difficult situation. You can see, you can already see that if they were to pivot to back toward a, you know, a, more, a more moderate position with some enforcement, that the progressive wing of the party is ready to denounce them. You see that from the statements from folks like AOC and Julian Castro and, and others. And, and so I don't see that coming any time soon. And I think that the, 
this this current situation, you know, with very high numbers of crossings and large numbers of, of families, in particular, um, are coming over the next few months, will probably continue. And there and there, you know, the the administration has opened nearly a dozen emergency shelters to accommodate all the unaccompanied teenagers and children. That's cost a fortune, and at some point, you know, you you got to expect they will have to go to Congress to ask for money. So. I think that this is going to be um, a huge challenge for them for, for at least the, for the next several months. And What seemed to me to happen was that Trump came in with all this really strident and often ugly and difficult language on immigration, which nonetheless reflected the way a lot of Americans feel about it, um, at least, at least in, viscerally. And, uh, and in response to the sort of draconian measures or the attempted draconian measures, the, the Democrats inevitably positioned themselves in hostility to that and then found themselves argumentatively being basically pro-immigrant, uh, anything against immigrants, no distinction between legal immigrants and illegal immigrants in the, in the rhetoric that you hear, for example, at the Democratic Convention or even in those early primary debates where there was not a single candidate that was in any way concerned with actually securing the border. I mean, they were all about decriminalizing it. They were all about defunding and abolishing ICE. Um, I mean, that was where all the energy was. And I was expecting at one point one candidate to just be the one that was like, no, we're going to go back to Obama. We're going to, we're going to, we're actually going to be tough on deportations. We're going to actually try and enforce the border. But we're also going to find a way to make sure all these people that are already here have a path to citizenship. No one did, including Biden. Uh, and, you know, he made a few little murmurs, but it's as if Trump converted the Democratic Party to a much more liberal position than they otherwise would have taken. And now they can't get out of it. That, I mean, that that's feel, feels that way to me. Yes. I Sometimes I think that they're they're baited by Stephen Miller. Yeah. Into um, into into a kind of a reaction that. Um, is is so for, so so stridently against any type of enforcement that they end up adopting a position that is out of line with what a lot of you know middle ground voters and and independent voters would support. And you saw there was a very interesting moment. We tried to capture this in a story a couple of weeks ago, but you know about a month before inauguration, um, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, and Susan Rice. Um, gave uh, an interview to the Spanish Wire Service, EFE, and uh, it was the first time that any, you know, incoming administration officials had given an interview about immigration. And they sounded a very cautious tone. They said that they wanted to ensure that there were, that Biden had just said he wanted guardrails in place. They didn't want two million people on the border. And they came in with a, with a tone that was essentially, the border's going to remain closed. You know, people shouldn't think that the border's open. And it sounded like they were trying to pivot back toward a toward a position more similar to the Obama administration's, which mm. is to be outwardly friendly and welcoming to immigrants, but also to leave in place a lot of the kind of machinery of immigration enforcement. And um, and then you know almost you know in those first ten days after inauguration, there were more executive orders and actions on immigration than any other thing, and many of them were were to strip away. A lot of the the policies and and um, and and executive orders that that Trump had put in that were so detested by attorneys and activists, um, but they ended up reinforcing that that message that things had changed dramatically, 
and it was a you know it was a, obviously the, any presidential transition is a time of uh, of a very great sensitivity at the border, right? And people have a perception that something has changed. We saw that when Trump got in, you know, the number of border crossings plummeted in those first few months, even though he had barely done anything, just based on the perception that he was going to be tough. And then, and then once people realized that nothing had really changed, the numbers went began to go up again. But the opposite has happened with Biden. You know, he he came in, he made a bunch of moves that. I think reinforced the perception that thing that the, the things were open. The coyotes, the smugglers, were telling people there's been a big change. Trump is gone. Things are open now, and all of it has combined into a kind of perfect perfect storm that they're going to have a very hard time getting under control. Let me ask you a difficult question, which is which is what did Trump do that, regardless of its morality, <laughs> regardless of whether you support it or not, that actually did work in terms of preventing the kind of levels of immigration that we are now uh, dealing with? What, was the, what were the most effective sort of, because he didn't get any legislation through of, of any significance, um, but, he, but it does, did, would you say, for example, that in his term, I mean, we have to, the pandemic skews everything weirdly towards the end of his term, obviously, because the border's shut. But before that, what was working? I'll give you like the short arc of the Trump administration's immigration enforcement, you know, approach. And um, as I said, right after he got in, the numbers really, really dropped. Right. And um, which suggests that when Washington sends a message, uh, it's heard. People do respond to messaging, particularly if there if there is a perception and then the messaging reinforces it. But it has to be it has to be backed up by actions because. Um, Again, after a few months, those uh, the the border numbers began to rise again. There was a very important moment that came in April of 2017 mm -hmm. when John Kelly, who was then the Homeland Security <clears throat> Secretary, goes on Wolf Blitzer, and Wolf Blitzer asks him about something that had been floating around. He said, "Are you considering?" You know, because more more families were arriving. He said, "Are you considering separating families, um, separating parents from their children as a deterrent?" And John Kelly said, "Yes, well, yes, we are." talking about that. And then the numbers remained low and nothing, they didn't do that. They didn't implement that policy. But when the numbers began to drift upward, and by then Trump was really looking at those numbers kind of as a, as a, as a metric, almost like a barometer for his success at the border on this issue that was so important to him. Those numbers were drifting up again. And that's when Miller, together with Sessions and, uh, and a top um, Advisor named Gene Hamilton really began to hatch the, the the zero tolerance policy and its family separation component. It was an idea that had been that had been kicked around at DHS, but but had been actually rejected by uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, the current DHS secretary, and Jay Johnson, who was Obama's DHS secretary. Anyway, this this idea you know comes to fruition in the spring of 2018 when Sessions announces a zero tolerance policy. Who's who's result was going to be that they would separate parents from their children. And, and, and clearly its goal was to try to stop um, this wave of family migration. Precisely because the families would uh, uh, anticipate in advance that they would lose their kids, that this would be, or their kids would be suffering, and that would deter them, right? It was really using some level of cruelty to deter people from making the journey. They would say it was to prosecute the adult. Right, but okay. the but the end result was inflicting cruelty on the children, 
And not only, you know, did they did they implement something that was so abominable to so many people, but they implemented it badly. Yeah. Which and, is which is the story of the entire administration. Right. I mean, even when they had a, a reasonable policy, they fucked it up so badly in the implementation. Um, did it? So it did it work? But then no, what happened? It, no, of course, it, it had to, it fell. Right. Fact, um, it, not, it, I would I would say, and this is obviously a subject of debate. But I would say, not only did it not work, it backfired terribly right. for them. Right. Because what happened was, you know, they only had it in place for six weeks, and it produces this enormous outrage. Until members of the president's own family, you know, after, the president, you know, Melania, and uh, you know, say you have to, you have to end this, right? I mean, it just, it's just intolerable. So, 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 by then, the amount of attention that was on this policy was enormous across the throughout the hemisphere, and the president comes out in um, June of twenty of twenty eighteen and says. You know, we're rescinding this. We're not going to separate families anymore. And that message just echoes throughout Central America. And what we saw in the months following that was this record wave of families. Um, of, of with a parent, kids. A parent coming with a child. And the because of uh, court rulings on that, you know, that basically say you cannot detain minors in, in immigration jails for for more than you know, three days, court rulings that prohibit the prolonged detention of of uh, of children in adult immigration jails. What was that ruling called? Like? So it's it's this thing called the Flores That's settlement. Right, the Flores, the Flores settlement. settlement. It goes all the way back to the to the nineties, and it and it governs the way that uh, migrant children in U.S. government custody are treated. And the the big change came in twenty fifteen. I think it was twenty fifteen when when a judge in California determined that it applied not only to unaccompanied minors, but also to children who arrive with parents. And it meant that um, if you uh, were an adult arriving with a parent, then, sorry, if you, so it meant that if you were uh, an adult arriving with a child, you would be uh, virtually assured um, that you'd, you'd be able to avoid detention and a, and a quick deportation. So kind of encouraged people to come with their kids. And it and that was reinforced by a pricing scheme in Central America, the, offered by smugglers, which was that um, it would be cheaper to go um, to the United States with a child than as a single adult. And why? Well, that's because if you are trying to go to the United States as a single adult, say to get to Houston, then there would be one price because they would have to sneak you over the border, past the border patrol, and deliver you to Houston. But if you're arriving with a child, if you're traveling with a child, you merely have to arrive at the border and surrender to the border patrol, and you'd be assured to be released. And so uh, there was a built-in financial incentive for this, in addition to the you know the, the many reasons that people want to 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 bring their their families over to to you know to, to get their children out and give them a better future. But all of this you know, reinforced and, and produced this historic wave of families that followed the Trump administration's peel rollback of, of zero tolerance family separation. And, um, and so what we saw was that the, those numbers building throughout the, through the end of, of 2018 and then, and especially in the spring of 2019, and then the breaking point comes in the late spring, um, 
there was a particular incident when a thousand, and you may remember people were, um, the smugglers were sending these families over in enormous groups of hundreds of people at a time. They had an, uh, like an express bus system that they were using where it was almost like a, like a travel agency and, and you know, buses would pull up um, along the highway right next to the border and, and entire busloads of people would come across and, and give themselves up to the border patrol and completely overwhelm the border patrol agents. So there was an incident in El Paso, um, right, I wanna say like right at the end of May 2019, early, early June 2019, when a thousand people came over in a single incident and the president just blew his stack. Trump went went absolutely nuts, and and that's when he lashed out and began threatening Mexico. He was gonna, he had been talking about this many times. He was gonna shut the border, but in this case, you know, he 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 threatened to to basically destroy the Mexican economy with escalating tariffs, and 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 the Mexican foreign minister rushes to Washington, and that's when we got um, the the a, a Mexican kind of militarized crackdown in the interior of Mexico, and the expansion of their their Remain in Mexico program, and and that was the the official name was migrant the migrant protection protocols. But really, it was a program to uh, to make people who were coming to seek asylum, particularly these families, wait in Mexico while their cases were were unfolding. And which I, I I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here. I, what's the problem with that? I mean, uh, if getting in means you're here forever, basically. Uh, why is it not fair to say, no, you apply for asylum if you wish, um, but you can't come in until we've actually examined your case and you've gone through the process by which we can allow you in? And secondly, the other thing that struck me as interesting was that Mexico could, if it wanted to, dramatically change the flow of people coming from its south through Mexico to the north. In other words, they also beefed up their southern border, as I understood it, and, and had military uh, deployment there. And in fact, that did slow quite a lot the, the flow of migration from the other Central American countries. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong. And this has become a pattern, like whenever um, the United States needs uh, an enforcement response that is sort of too unpalatable to, to do here, they outsource it to the, to the Mexican government. And we saw that in 2014 when the Mexican, when Mexican authorities really cracked down on the number of people riding those freight trains. Right. And we saw it um, uh, in 2019 when the Trump administration really coerced Mexico into this militarized crackdown. And we're seeing it now um, with the Biden administration um, entering into these negotiations over the, the the delivery of vaccines to the Mexican government, and 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 they they insist it isn't a quid pro quo, but these these this this arrangement has been worked out in the context of uh, of the U.S. sending vaccines to Mexico in exchange for Mexico toughening its enforcement. It 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 does um, it can have an immediate impact, as you say, um, but typically it isn't sustainable, and it's a lot to ask uh, Mexico to spend its resources. Um, you know, uh, performing an, inf an immigration enforcement role for the United States when a lot of the root causes of of this dynamic, you know, are both um, produced in Central America, but as well as you know, in the kind of dysfunction of our own immigration system. Well, let's let's talk for a second about asylum, uh, quote unquote asylum. That is the primary reason being cited at the border for people to be allowed in. It doesn't strike me that as we have classically understood asylum, which I have understood to be, 
if I get sent back to my country, I will be politically persecuted. I will have religious persecution or the government will actually target me. It was, it was created in many ways during the Cold War to enable people from communist uh, countries to be able to get here and easily and quickly. I don't see that in Central America. What I see are definitely dysfunctional regimes that are not actually doing very well. You can see huge uh, problems with agriculture, with gangs, with violence, and of course with climate change, also slowly undermining some of the capacities of these countries to actually earn money. Uh, you see what looks to me like a sort of slightly expedited form of economic migration, which is, which is not asylum. Am I, uh, and yet the asylum can be raised just simply as a, uh, as a, as a, as a defense. There's, it's very hard to prove it, so you have to say, oh, we'll come in and then we'll figure it out, at which point it's all kind of over. All right, so this is a, a great question. There's a lot to unpack here, but okay. I'll, I'll try to do it as fast as possible. So you're right. The asylum, the asylum laws were essentially created in react, both in reaction to the Holocaust and the U.S. Uh, uh, rejection of, of Jews fleeing persecution in Nazi Europe, as well as a Cold War approach to welcoming people who were persecuted by, uh, by communist governments. Um, but, the, but yes, the asylum laws are very clear. They're about um, protecting people from persecution. And, and your persecution being if you're a member of a you know, religious or, uh, or for, for political views or, if you're, or your membership in a particular social group and so the way that that um, and so there are also other forms of protection that the United States can offer to people who are facing imminent harm, such as violence or um, or, or or death, like the Convention Against Torture. And so someone who who so when you come to the United States, there are basically two forms of asylum. There's affirmative asylum where you are allowed into the United States on some kind of visa. You arrive at the airport, and then you say, I've made it into the United States, but you can't, I have to be able to stay because if I'm sent home, I'll be, I'll be harmed. That's a, a smaller pool of people. But what's really exploded over, the, over these, the most recent years is what's called defensive asylum. And that is where you arrive on U.S. soil and you say, if I'm deported, I will face imminent harm. And that is that is the credible fear uh, rubric here that when they say the, the, the judge or the person involved has to judge whether that's a credible fear or not. Very good. Yes. And so <laughs> the way it, it typically it's where it's it has worked is that an asylum officer at U.S. Um, Citizenship and Immigration Services, a part of DHS that deals with a legal immigration system, an asylum officer gives you an initial credible fear screening. And that is to determine, you know, whether this person has uh, uh, a possibility of being harmed, and that's a fairly generous standard. And and what we saw in, in recent years was that seventy to eighty percent of people were were granted, um, we were able to clear that that initial threshold, um, and so that got them into the immigration court system, and in some ways meant that they would have a hearing far in the future, and they would be allowed to live and work in the United States for a period of years while their case played out. Now, that th those are the kinds of things that the Trump administration really focused on tightening. And by the time the pandemic hit and you know, um, in the spring of last year, they had almost uh, they had figured out numerous ways to tighten the asylum system and really um, uh, prevent people from from being 
allowed to enter the United States, make that fear claim, and then be released into the United States, what they refer to as catch and release. And so you, you also talked about MPP, the Remain in Mexico program. Again, another way to av avoid having people make a claim and then be released into the United States. The problem with the way that they, that they implemented it um, was that you know, they, they had promised the rapid adjudication of, of these claims. And instead, a lot of people were sent into to Mexico and then, and then you know, their claims didn't move forward. They didn't hear back. Some of them were living in these squalid camps. So again, it was a, it was a program that was implemented, I'd say in a lot of ways, poorly with the clear goal of acting as a deterrent rather than um, producing a more efficient system or at least giving people um, who you know may qualify for some kind of protection a cleaner a clearer shot at, at getting that protection so um, so I understand protection <clears throat> for example it means that the government or military forces or police of a certain state will target you if you go back to that country um, usually for political reasons if you happen to live in a crime-ridden city uh, in which violence is a constant threat that is not a reason for asylum if it were we'd have to admit half the planet uh, under those uh, conditions. And I also understand the Obama administration, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, expanded it so that if you were, if it was domestic violence, for example, you could have a, you could claim credible fear at the border of going back and having your husband beat you up again. Um, horrible things, of course, but not traditionally what I would have understood as an asylum claim. Not the basis traditionally for an asylum claim, that's right. And so, um, you know, one of the things that you've seen already from the Biden administration um, in terms of kind of misleading rhetoric on this is this idea that everybody that everybody arriving right now is fleeing violence or they're fleeing for their lives. They're they're fleeing persecution. Um, and they're and and part of that is also to sort of they, there's this this place called the Northern Triangle that is that is like in this undifferentiated violent mass. And you know, having worked many years as a Latin American correspondent and spent a significant amount of time in, in these countries, the reality is infinitely more complex. And, and as we've seen in a lot of more, a lot of the recent interviews with migrants arriving now, there are a lot of people who are, um, a lot of Guatemalans are, are leaving rural areas of Guatemala where um, there's been the devastating hurricanes, where there are crop, where there's crop failure um, compounded over many years, where there's acute sensitivity to climate change, where a subsistence agriculture model is absolutely failing. And, and a lot of people are trying to reunite with, with husbands, wives, kids already in the United States. Family migration is a huge driving factor for this. And so at the same time, there are you know, places like urban San Pedro Sula in Honduras where the gangs are extremely powerful and people have specific threats or they've got murdered, you know, loved ones, and they're in a very difficult situation where they are potentially facing imminent harm. Um, and the whole, but that's the whole point of our court system is to be able to sort out who has a, a valid claim for protection and who doesn't. And that's a huge part of our current problem because it's been so underfunded. We don't have the number of immigration courts immigration judges I mean you're shaking your head at that is that is that overwrought is that no you you do need a, a, a dramatic expansion of the court to and the system in order to to work through this huge backlog um, but you know 
during the Trump administration, they were adding, you know, record numbers of immigration judges. It's not something mm. you can easily scale up. I mean, no, where do you obviously. where do you go out and get two thousand immigration judges, right? So, um, you know, a, a big part of this problem is again, you know, going back to this idea of this bro broken down car. It's like we have this this system that is completely coming apart. That is that is that is really buckling from this backlog of of 1.3 million you know cases and now we have a new you know migration wave that is compounding it with with more people coming in who are going to get in that line who are going to be in that backlog and who are really going to going to spend many years in this country in this sort of you know weird status where they're not really legal they don't really have a permanent solution they're not um they're not really empowered to to embrace and fully embrace, you know, they have a tenuous place here. They're easily exploited, obviously. They're easily exploited. Taken advantage of. So it's not, a, it's not like, a, it's, not a, it's not a functional or sustainable no. system. And it's, it's psychologically awful to not know where you're going to be living in five years' time or even have some basic security about where you live and how you'd be able to live there for the rest of your life. It's incredibly unfair. It seems to me, in many ways, cruel to let lots of people in and leave them in this limbo, in this awful limbo of insecurity and exploitability, rather than just say, like, "No, you can't come in. We are we're enforcing this, and then we'll 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 have a smaller number of asylum cases we can come in, and we'll we'll determine who comes in and out of our country depending upon our own national interests." I mean, again. I come at this from a sort of, and this is what I think the Democrats don't get, if you'll forgive me for talking about them that way, but I, I basically think, well, you have a nation state and it has borders and there's nothing immoral about policing those borders. There is nothing immoral about saying we don't want any more or we're okay with where we are or we want to reduce our levels of illegal or and legal immigration. Those are practical questions that you can have. But the notion that we can't even make that decision because the system is so broken, the border is so porous, that all of this is sort of abstract in a way. And meanwhile, what is it, this year? I mean, if 170,000 people show up in March, how many this year are going to enter the United States? So A million, a million so, and a half, two so, million? So DHS Secretary Mayorkas has already said publicly that they're anticipating the largest migration wave in more than 20 years. And... Uh, we, we've, as we've reported, you know, we, but again, we, we like expecting a migration. I'm what are you, are you talking about? You're observing this. You're, you're the person in charge of, I'm talking about you, I'm talking about Mallorca. You're supposed to be enforcing the border. We shouldn't have an immigration wave at all if we enforce the border. So how is that not just a mission of defeat? I think it's a very sober assessment of, of what they're, what they're facing. And he can't just kind of wave a magic right. wand and, and, um, you know they uh, they are projecting um, nearly two million people this year, and um, again, can you name? Could I name off the top of my head another country in the world which just admits two million? Well, let's foreigners? look at the European migration wave. Right, like twenty fifteen, say. Right, and I don't remember how many people arrived in Europe, but we know that it produced a very um, a very powerful backlash that empowered uh, the far right. Yes, it's it's almost certainly why Brexit happened. Um, it's almost certainly why the AfD in Germany is now possibly the number two party. Um, it uh, Marine Le Pen currently in France could well win the presidential election next year. And if you think that, you know, if you think that Boris Johnson was a, a remarkably difficult and weird 
occurrence. Marine Le Pen is the president of France, possibly like withdrawing from the EU even. I mean, this stuff is happening. And when I, when I told you my friends on the left, I'm like, don't you understand that this is a reaction? And you're going to get a populist right response to this. It's going to be worse than anything you might have otherwise done. Can't you see that? And they just say to me, well, they're racists and Nazis, so we have to oppose them. And I'm like, well, if opposing them empowers them in this way, what are you talking about? And then it, then it comes down to this notion of um, racism, that, that, that any attempt to control immigration is really just a function of you being racist. And you just don't want brown people coming into the country. You just don't want uh, uh, Middle Eastern people coming into Central Europe. Certainly Central Europe doesn't. Central Europeans don't want Middle Easterners coming into their, into their countries in such large numbers. Um, how, do, how does one respond to that? Because my, my issue is, first of all, it has to be just secure, and then we can make decisions rationally. Uh, but secondly, uh, it really doesn't matter what race these people are. It's, what skills do they bring? How can they be fully integrated? What is the right pace in which we can bring people in? I'm one of these old, I like immigration. I, of course I do. I'm, I'm an immigrant. Um, and, it, and I like legal immigration. But I, I just don't like the sense that there is no control. And that was the key, you know, that was the, the winning slogan for Brexit. Take back control. And when, you, when I look at Ron DeSantis right now, who's been really badly treated, I think, by 60 Minutes, and he's, he's going to run on this. Uh, and the Republican Party is going to run on this in 2022 uh, in a big way. And if, we're, if two million a year are coming in, uh, you're going to have Trump again or someone like Trump. Yeah, and what's the phrase? If liberals don't control borders, fascists will. Yeah, I mean, that's David Frum's <laughs> sentence, I think, I mean, originally. There's, but yeah, there's evident. I mean, there's evident risks for the Democratic Party as they sort through this divide between the progressive wing and liberals. Um, and you know, I think often about the the trajectory of Cecilia Munoz, who was Obama's top immigration advisor, someone who came from the activist world but then came into the administration. And very quickly figured out that for m many reasons, but mainly for political strategic reasons, that you had to have some, some you had to find your way to some version of enforcement that was palatable that you could that you were comfortable with. But she was she's been vilified by the by the progressive activist wing, and and you know continues to 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 carry that you know that letter of of, of betrayal. But this is very much an unresolved problem for the for the Democrats, and I think, you know, what we've seen so far from the Biden administration is that the the, the progressive wing is really in control of this policy right now, and um, and they're and they're I think they're betting that they can that they can get it under control by by adding capacity. I mean, all of so many of the things what we've seen from the Biden administration's response so far are about adding more capacity in order to be able to to house. More unaccompanied minors to be able to release families faster, um, but the paradox of that, of course, is that it will incentivize more people to come. Um, and when you look at the long term, I mean, if, if you're looking like the next thirty years, say, and when you think of climate change, you think of the politics of Central America. I'm just—I don't think it takes a genius to see that this is a, this is an issue that's going to keep growing and. And that, and on that note, let me let me ask you about the wall. Do 
walls in general work in this fashion? I look at Israel, for example, and I'm like, well, did seem to have some effect there. Um, or is it like Northern Ireland in which uh, tougher borders create even more animosity and mutual uh, loathing? How did the wall, how, how do you view the wall? I mean, Nancy Pelosi on the one hand said, it's, a mor it's, a, it's just morally wrong, she said, morally wrong to build a wall. On the other hand, you have like the Trump people say, why don't we have a wall? It's the only thing that can stop people. It strikes me the truth is somewhere in between those two things. And I would, I, but I personally have no issues with building a wall to mount a border. If there's no other way to really be secure, I don't see why it's immoral in some way. I mean, it's ugly and it doesn't send a really good signal about who we are. On the other hand, it does send a signal that we're not just uh, open for anybody to come and, and stay in the United States. Where do you where do you come down on all this? So I've spent a lot of time thinking yeah. about the border wall and yeah. writing about it. And um, a couple of quick thoughts. You know, one is that, that the United States has long had barriers of some kind, particularly in high traffic areas. And I think without question, the, there's a benefit to having physical barriers in busy urban areas like San Diego, El Paso, um, where someone can quickly cross or, or bring narcotics and rapidly disappear into the urban environment. Um, having some kind of barrier um, is an asset to you know, federal law enforcement. The question is wh whether or not it's any, uh, whether there's any purpose to building hundreds of miles of barriers across uh, deserts and mountains where there's very little traffic. And uh, I think what, you know, you know, we, we in, in, in 2019, um, when the president was starting to campaign, Trump was starting to campaign for re-election, he, he, he talked about the wall as this impenetrable, as this impenetrable barrier, right? And it, it was really, it was clear that it was this kind of metaphor for the way he saw himself. In a lot of ways, that project was meant to be a symbol of Trump and a kind of physical extension of, of himself, right? And it's one of the reasons why it was so um, galvanizing for his supporters and it was such a powerful symbol. But as a practical tool, its, its utility is, is in doubt. And one of the things that, um, you know, that, that we were able to, to uncover was that uh, smugglers had figured out very quickly how to saw through it and cut, cut the bollards, the steel bollards. And because they were so long, because they were so tall, if you cut them at their base, they could simply swing as if like, like uh, they were just you know, dangling loose. And we have seen that now dozens and dozens of times along the border. And most recently in, in this incident, which 13, in which, in which two um, SUVs overloaded with people um, you know, came through after the border wall was cut in the, in the Imperial Valley of California and tragically ended in this horrific accident which killed 13 people. Um, but that's just an example of the way the wall's ability to deter people is quite limited. And what I would add to that is that- When you say that's quite limited, um, could, it, could there be a better wall? <laughs> I mean, uh, is, is, is there any wall that could be impermeable? I mean, or is, is every, any wall that you could feasibly build could it be foiled by coyotes and and all these other uh, actors. I, I mean, you can you can you know the the, the wall. I mean, what the, what the what CBP and the Border Patrol would say is that the wall is just kind of one tool. I mean, they never claimed it was like a be right. all end all be all and an impenetrable barrier. 
Um, it's it's one you know one thing that they think you know uh, by and large can help them along with um, surveillance and agents and roads and all of these things. They can increase your chances of of in, you know of an interdiction. But I, I think given the the financial incentives of smuggling both narcotics and people, the resources of the Mexican criminal organizations, you're never going to be able to really stop something with a passive barrier like that. But the, but the other point that I really need to make is that the wall is completely useless to help you with the current migration dynamic. Why? Well, because the wall in, in for so much of the border in, in South Texas, which is the busiest place where most of the children and, and families are arriving, the wall isn't on the border. It is, it is far back from the border. It's on the river levee, which in some cases is almost two miles away from the Rio Grande. So anybody who comes across the river is on U.S. soil, but they're on the south side of the wall. But they have to be taken into custody by the Border Patrol, and that's where they can get into the into well, the asylum claim system. It's, it's sort of so you're not going to you're not going to wall your way out right. of a dysfunctional immigration system and an asylum system. The only way you're going to do it is with legislation, and that path is through Congress. Right, and that would that would that would involve. Well, I mean, if you were to pass, let's give you let's give you a dictator's uh, wand right now, and if you could just write down the four things that you would implement in a in an immigration reform bill uh, that would actually really help stem illegal migration, uh, what would they be? I mean, this isn't you know I, I I'm not in the <laughs> legislative no I know you know, but lane, tell me but, but I think but people I think have clearly, some idea of what what, what, yeah. what could what could make a difference I don't don't stop but what would you start with what would you actually start with in in priority well you have to give people uh, uh, a credible rapid determination to their asylum and humanitarian claims for protection you have to process that quickly and you have to have a conclusive result how quickly would they be kept outside the country until that result? Uh, you know, that, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things that I think that the Biden folks will come to regret is is throwing away some of the programs that you could see implemented in a by a Democratic administration in a different way. I mean, you brought up M MPP, the Remain in Mexico program, which everybody will remember the images of people, you know, living in squalor in these camps. And and again, it was, you know, from my perception, mostly used just as a as a way to keep people out, not as a way to give them a, a quick determination. But but it, it isn't hard to imagine a democratic government, a democratic administration implementing that program with the United Nations in a way that had real resources, that had real legal muscle behind it, and you know, would potentially solve the the problem of of people coming and being released in a way that would be appealing to republicans but also that would um you know give people safety protection and um and a credible hearing you know a legitimate hearing of their case so could they do something like that i don't know i mean they're 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 a sort of humane and better funded remain in mexico program that could expedite these applications is that I mean yeah I mean is That'd that a potential is that a potential option for for the Democrats at this point I don't know it's gonna it would be costly for them but but if you if if the, but the current situation that they're in now is unsustainable so so what are what are some of their potential enforcement avenues and then the other thing I would I would mention is 
you know, the Trump administration worked out these asylum cooperation agreements. They're also called like safe third countries. And the idea being that like, if you arrive to the border from Guatemala, then, and you, you're, you're, you, you need protection, then they would, they could potentially send you to another country in Central America, like El Salvador or Honduras, that was part of this agreement. And you would have some kind of, you know, UN process there that would offer you protection and potentially resettle you in another nation that wouldn't have to be one of those three nations. But, you know, the Biden administration has talked repeatedly about like a regional approach. So we need a regional framework. They want to work with Mexico. They want to work with the other countries in the region. So could they devise a, a kind of palatable um, uh, arrangement that would that would have an internationalized process, more like a refugee process to give someone a hearing and and help them resettle somewhere else in the region if really what they're fleeing is an immediate threat on on their life or their safety as opposed to you know trying to migrate for economic reasons or to reunite with their relatives in the United States. Yeah, refugees. Because because my sense is that in the coming years, if let's say there's another disastrous climate event, um, you, this is just the beginning of a huge upward northward migration. It seems to me, and and therefore. Getting stuff in there that can be proactive isn't just constantly reactive, is 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 a very useful thing to do. Um, my also my other concern is simply that we are I think we're at fourteen point three percent of the country population is now foreign born, which is and I'm one of those people, uh, which is I think a, close to if not past the historical peak at some point in the early twentieth century, somewhere like that. It's it's roughly. Like that, and of course, that very early peak in a country that was, you know, much emptier than it is today, um, eventually created the impulse for the 1924 Immigration Act, which basically shut down immigration altogether. And that's another question that interests me, um, because the period when we basically sh stopped immigration, 24 to 65, really. I mean, obviously, we're we're in we've got the World War. Uh, in between it and lots of other complicated things. But those were good times for American labor, for domestic wages. Um, and and, and what, what we saw under Trump in some ways was uh, as he pumped up the economy while he also attempted to uh, control uh, illegal immigration, was we did begin to see an increase in, in wages for those at the bottom of the pile. Black Americans, Latino Americans, working class Americans, unskilled labor. Uh, why wouldn't a sort of pause in immigration overall in the United States not be a, a useful period in which to absorb the, ma the large numbers of immigrants we already have um, and to uh, stabilize the politics within the country? I mean, my argument for the wall was, was taking into account all that you've said was as, an, as, a, as a symbol of security for people living in the middle of America, just as a symbol that we're not being overrun. There's a, there's a barrier there. It's just psychologically, psychologically, it calms things down a little bit in the middle in, if a lot of people are insecure about it. And that, I think, is, is a really important thing if we're going to, if we're going to calm the feelings that, that we really are being overwhelmed with 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 people from outside, you know. I, I mean, again, the, the Trump administration built four hundred and fifty four miles of new border wall, one of the costliest federal infrastructure projects in American history, more than thirteen billion dollars, and yet 
they got a huge migration spike in 2019, and we're in another one now. And 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 I, you know, again, I think those are um, the things that are driving it are just out outside the bounds or of of a of a physical structure because, you know, because of the the fact that once you're on U.S. soil, you can get into the into these you know loopholes essentially of of you know of an overwhelmed asylum system. Um, and and even if it's comforting, you know, I think to to some people to just uh, the idea of that there's like some kind of barrier there. What we're going to continue to see is that it's going to be breached, and and the smugglers will cut through it, and people will climb over it, and there's just the incentives to get through it are so powerful that they will overcome, you know, whatever. Modest it's like it's like a dam when the water is consistently and perennially rising. At some point, it's going to give way. It can't alone prevent this influx. Yeah, and I think what what. Um, history has also shown is that you know legal um, mechanisms and incentives have a have a more have a greater influence on on migration. Um, everything from hiring to the economy to um, you know to the ability to be released into the United States, um, all of these things are potentially you know more useful tools or, or you know can have a bigger impact. If if your goal is to try to get this problem under control, and I I do think you're you know you're you're absolutely right about what a lot of people you know f- feel it's not it's not necessarily I mean there certainly are racists who are coming at it from that perspective I don't think we should be naive about that but I think there's a huge number of people who just don't like the idea of something being out of control and don't like to see um, an American system or a law enforcement system just broken down and not working and and, and that also includes recent immigrants. I mean, Latinos, what was striking to me was how many Latinos in Texas in particular swung quite hard toward Trump last time. The, the, and this is another thing that people don't really, I think, understand is that if you are a, a recent illegal immigrant or legal immigrant, you can often be very opposed to the next wave coming over. You're often the group most opposed to because you're the one most vulnerable to competition from those people. Well, you're vulnerable to competition or you went through the process legally or it, there's an immediate impact on your community. I mean, one of the interesting things about this current moment is that the most stinging criticism, the most outspoken criticism, I think, has come from you know two South Texas congressmen. Henry Cuellar and Vicente Gonzalez, you know, they're South Texas Democrats who represent the Rio Grande Valley where this is happening. And they understand this this dynamic very well. And you see, you know, they're in changing districts that that went surprisingly, you know, more toward, toward Trump than folks anticipated. And they recognize the vulnerability they're facing. Um, but I think, you know, I do think we'll see this. So, I mean, I... I think it potentially points to a broader problem that the Democratic Party has with law enforcement, right? If if there's a, a big rise in, in crime in U.S. cities, and um, you know we saw the 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 way that I think you know people reacted to the defund the police push, um, I think you see that too along the border in in um, you know just this this perception that they're not able to to control the system or that you know that they can't generate a, an, any kind of sort of effective law enforcement response and something is slipping out of control and they need somebody to come in and reassert authority especially the sense that the people in charge don't really want to enforce these laws that if you listen to the democrats in their primary debates 
there was no there was no no one even suggesting that it was a good thing to police the border. Um, the, the 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 instinct was that why would we not? I mean, one of the most common responses on Twitter, and to some extent, it's it's quite it's quite. This is not an immigration crisis. Solve the crisis by letting everybody in. And that's that's the response from the left in many ways. And if you don't support that, you're just a you're just a white supremacist anyway. Um, and borders are racist. That's uh, which one of my former interns um, has been saying. I don't. I'm, I first of all, I don't agree, obviously. Uh, but secondly, I think it's politically suicidal for the Democrats to be saying that. And and I can see a scenario looking forward to the next year or so where we have a booming economy I and mean, something that's I think going to overheat in many ways. Uh, which is going to be another big draw. There's going to be a lot of construction, a lot of infrastructure. Um, you're going to have, you know, we're not going to see a sudden miracle in Central America where all these governments and societies become stable and prosperous. Um, you're going to maybe see a continuing rise in violent crime in some of the major cities, and it's going to be associated in many people's heads with the defund the police uh, movement. Um the Democrats are walking into what would normally be exactly their nightmare scenario, looking soft on crime and soft on immigration. Uh, and what's interested me, looking abroad at left-of-center parties that have done well, is that they have, in New Zealand, for example, which is, uh, uh, Jacinda Ardern is, is, is understood to be this incredible progressive, you know, she's absolute hard-ass on immigration. Uh, and and there are also, you know, left parties in Europe that are beginning to say, no, look, we want our own workers to be defended. Um, we don't want to be part of this multinational plot to get cheap labor all over the world, um, as well as, obviously, the, the usual uh, suspects on the right. Um, I, I just think this is much more politically dangerous for Democrats than they seem to believe or understand. Um, I don't want to see another Trump because uh, I think you get someone fueled by those feelings who actually has some competence and isn't a complete... Uh, you could. It's not like we don't have examples of the far right coming to power on the basis of this issue. And, and complacency in the face of that seems to me to be really misguided. Anyway, that's my little lecture about this. <laughs> um, Nick, I wanted to thank you for for coming in and talking this through. It's, it's a very volatile and emotional subject. Um, hard to talk about it. I mean, I, have you found it very hard? Is reporting this stuff getting harder? Are you hammered everywhere for anything that you say? Is Twitter being mean to you? I get, I get it a little bit, yeah. But, I mean, it's not. I mean, when I was starting out, I would get angry phone calls and angry letters. And, you know, people just have, they have very strong feelings about, about this. And, um you got to just take it a, a, as part of the job and, and yeah. keep going and, and really stay focused on providing facts for the discourse and trying to challenge, you know, the, the preconceptions that people have about this stuff and telling the story in as nuanced and as accurate a way as you can. Um, I think that's the best thing we can do as, as reporters who are really trying to stay focused on, on the facts. I am... More grateful than ever for the fewer and fewer journalists, it seems, who are, who are intent on exactly that focus on reality and the facts, um, and for which I'm most grateful. And I urge all dish heads and listeners to this uh, dish cast to, to make sure you don't miss Nick Mirov's uh, dispatches from the border. They're interesting. They're fact-filled. They have context and nuance. 
if you're if you're finding that rarer and rarer in the mainstream media, you're not entirely <laughs> wrong. But here's an exception that I really encourage you to um, to read more of. Thank you again, Nick. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Andrew. You bet. Oh.